Hello, this is Pastor Kieker. I am the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Clinton, Missouri. Welcome to the 11th class of a 12-week class that I am currently teaching on, a Lutheran theology of worship, and in particular, the gifts that the Lord Jesus gives to us in Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. This class, we're continuing our historical analysis of the church's practice revolving around the Eucharist. We're going to pick right back up in the 7th century, where we left off our last class, and journey through the history of the church all the way up through the Reformation in the 1500s. Thank you for joining us. May God bless you, and the Lord be with you always. Good to have everyone here this morning on a gorgeous day outside. <laughs> the Lord be with you. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the ways of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would continually place your word before our eyes, fixing our eyes on the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and his word of grace and truth that fills our hearts and our lives with your love and your mercy and your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that that word would continue to be the center of our lives, the meditation of our hearts, and the things which flow from our lips, that we would teach them to our children and our children's children so that they may know your word and rejoice in your truth, following your commandments and staying true and faithful to your son. For we know that when we are faithless, he remains faithful and his word, it truly does endure forever. Plant us firmly on that word of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, um, last week we looked kind of through the first six, seven centuries, um, and we saw a very consistent approach in the sense that the church was celebrating communion weekly, or every Lord's Day. We saw that in the letters of Justin Martyr and Cyprian and... Um, Hippolytus, and that there wasn't really any change in the practice of the church or in the teaching of the church. It's very consistent until we noted about the 6th or 7th century, especially under Pope Gregory the Great, who did a lot of great things for the church. Um, If it wasn't for Pope Gregory, Western Christianity as we know it probably wouldn't exist. Um, A lot of historians say that Pope Gregory was the last great pope, um, or the last good pope even. Um, he did a lot of wonderful things, but, but he did introduce a few things and developed into some weird practices, especially re- revolving around the Eucharist. And, and we saw 
kind of these superstitious beliefs start to creep in. Um, you know, that priests were now offering the Eucharist or these private masses not once every week, but up to 30 or 50 times every day. And they were being paid by the laity to perform these things because the laity were, were, were led to believe that by offering these private masses, they could actually receive some sort of earthly or temp temporal blessing from God. So, you know, if you had a job interview coming up that week, maybe you went to your priest and had a private mass said on your behalf so that your job interview would go okay. And we, we looked at the list of things that people were buying private masses for, you know, to find a husband, um, to, uh, to have a good hunt, you know, all these bizarre things. And so um, priests were offering private masses, and, and by the end of the 7th century, 8th century especially, we're told that they are now being paid by their parishioners. And get this, they're even receiving larger stipends depending on how high they hold the host up. Right, because along with all this superstitious stuff, this idea crept into that the higher the priest could hold the host up, and the longer he could hold it up, then the more effective it was, or something like this. And so, priests were actually, you know, you'd find the priest who could, who could hold it up really high. You know, if there's Elroy, it would go exactly really high. El Elroy would be getting a lot more money than someone like me, right? Um, Exactly. Um, and on page 88 in your book, we, we, get the, we see this line that, that even though masses were being celebrated almost every hour of the day at this time. So we've gone, where have we gone from one time a week every Lord's Day? We've ramped it up exponentially. Now every hour of the day of the whole week, masses are being offered, but the faithful were no longer receiving it. They're no longer actually receiving it. Instead, sadly, the laity were reduced to being mere spectators who were simply just trying to get a glimpse of the elevated host. Because along with the superstitious belief was you didn't actually have to receive Christ. As long as you just saw it, that was enough. Um, and so the church's historical practice begins to change. And then we meet this man named Redbertus. Rad Burtis. He's an abbot. In 844, um, Rad Burtis is the first one that we are told questions the bodily presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And he's the one who teaches that it's only a spiritual presence. Spiritual presence only. That the Eucharist was not Christ's true body and blood, but, but just Jesus was just spiritually present in this meal. Now, Robertus is important to remember because he's the first one who raises this thought in the church. Before that, the previous 800 years of the church, this question was never even raised. Robertus is the first one who teaches it. Um, and where, does his, where is his teaching based from? Again, that superstitious understanding that seeks um, things in the spiritual realm. Um, and so he's the one who teaches this. And now we have full-blown superstition uh, uh, revolving around the Eucharist. You don't need to eat it. You don't need to drink it. 
It's not really Christ's body and blood anyways. He's spiritually present. Christ is present everywhere. Uh, you can worship him anywhere that you want. And, and now the laity are not even going to churches. What's the point? Right, so it's Robertus who, who, um, who, who introduces this to the church. Now we're going to come back to a Robertus. I just want to kind of put a dot there on him um, because he will come back up. Now, it's this um, teaching that leads to a man, and I don't think he was actually in the book, but I don't know how you don't talk about Thomas Aquinas when talking about church history. So I'm going to give you Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas is a theologian from the 1200s, so fast forward, you know, 300 years. Aquinas is a professor at the University of Paris. He's in France. And during that time, um, there was a resurgence of this particular kind of philosophy called Aristotelian philosophy. Now, Aristotle was a philosopher a thousand years before Aquinas. His philosophy had been around for a long time. But in France, about a hundred years before Aquinas, it, it makes kind of this resurgence. Um, Aristotelian philosophy becomes kind of the philosophy of the day. And to Thomas Aquinas's credit, he actually attempts to take this philosophy and apply it to the Eucharist in an attempt to challenge Robertus in this idea of the spiritual presence only of Christ. And, and this is Aristotelian philosophy in a nutshell. Um, everything has a substance and an accident. So, uh, for instance, this chair, here's a chair. This is a chair, right? We all agree this is a chair. But it's there only the spirit. Uh, hold on, Timothy. <laughs> I want to make sure that we're all in agreement that this is a chair. a chair. If you do not think it's a chair, then maybe we need to talk after class. <laughs> this is a chair. And, and the philosophy states that the substance or the essence of this thing is that it is a chair. Uh, its chairness is its substance. But the accidents, the thing that you see, well, I see metal, and I see fabric, and I see some metal screws. The accidents of this chair are the things which you see. If this chair was made out of wood, would it still be a chair? Yes. Yes. Uh, its chairness would not change. The accidents change. So if the ch it doesn't matter if the chair is made out of fabric or metal or wood or plastic. The essence of a, of a thing, of the chair, its chairness, is that. But the accidents can change. Well, Aquinas applies this to the Eucharist. He says, when, when the priest holds up bread, what is the substance of the bread? It is bread. That it is, its breadness is there. But when the words of Jesus are spoken over that bread, the substance changes. The very essence of the bread becomes Christ. The essence is Jesus. The substance is Jesus. The accidents don't change. You still see bread. You still drink wine. You still see wine. I mean, you still see wine. You drink, though, blood. The essence changes. So this is where this word comes from. Substance. Substance. Change. Trans. Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation uh, comes from Thomas Aquinas. That in the Eucharist, 
the host, the very essence of the host, does transform. It's no longer the breadness of the bread is no longer there. It is the essence of Jesus Christ himself, his true body and his true blood. The accidents don't change. Does that make sense? Um, it's Aquinas who, who, who introduces the, the idea of transubstantiation in the 1200s. Now, it's the fourth Lateran Council of the Church in 1215 where the, the Roman Catholic Church will say, that's it. That's the official dogma of the church. Transubstantiation is the church's understanding of the Eucharist, that um, the substance changes or transforms into Christ's body and blood. The accidents remain. Um, Luther comes along, and we'll get to Luther in a second, but I just want to put this out there now. Luther comes along and says, yeah, maybe. Maybe that's a way to explain it, but maybe not. And he starts to back away, right? Because what's Luther going to uphold? The mystery. Ultimately, it's a mystery. It is Christ's body and blood, but why are you using Aristotelian philosophy to try to explain that to people? Or scholasticism. Um, that, that might be right, he says. Might be. Or it might not be. So why are we making an official church dogma? Just let it be. Now, before we get to Luther, though, a man named uh, Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, he is in, over in England, and he's during the 1300s. He comes along, John Wycliffe, interestingly enough, in the light of transubstantiation and all these talks that the church is having, and he says, you know, remember this guy named Robertus? Uh, I think he had it right. I don't think the essence really changes. I don't think Jesus is truly there. Wycliffe is the one who now champions again, Robertus, that it's just a spiritual presence. Christ's true body and blood is not physically there. Now, who is, who is Zwingli going to tap into during the Reformation when Luther and him are meeting at the Marburg Colloquy? Zwingli is going to go back to John Wycliffe, who is drawing from Robertus, and they're all teaching the same thing. And, and we'll get to the Marburg Colloquy in a little bit because that's a monumental shift in the direction of the church. So John Wycliffe, he, he re-channels Robertus, and now the church is still struggling. And then we meet a man by the name of Jan Hus. And that might be a familiar name to you. Jan Hus is in the 1400s. He's in Bohemia. And he says, you know, here's two things that I think the church should probably change. One, we should probably draw all authority of what we believe, teach, and confess from the scriptures alone. Sound familiar? Secondly, he says, the laity should be receiving communion in both kinds, both the bread and the wine, because by this point, the laity was only receiving it uh, by the bread. They were not receiving the cup. Jan Hus is the one who introduces this big idea that you should have both. Catholic Church burns them at the stake on July 6, 14. It was in your book. Yeah. July 6, 14, 15, John Huss um, is martyred for those teachings. Now, who comes along and is accused of being a Hussite? 
a man named Martin Luther in the 1500s. And here we get to the Reformation. Luther in the 1500s. And what are the things that Luther is going to talk about when it comes to the Eucharist? Well, this is interesting. We are told that from 1522 to 1530, more essays flowed from the pen of Martin Luther on the Lord's Supper than on any other topic. What's Luther going to spend a lot of his time talking about? The Eucharist. And we see on page 100, this is in your book, on page 100 in the first paragraph, we see uh, this, this quote, As soon as Luther speaks of God, he cannot help but speak also of the worship of God, which is inseparable from the God revealed in Christ Jesus. Worship of God is not so much the human reply to a relation established by God, but rather worship is where God deals with us. The heart of God's dealing with us is where the risen Christ comes to teach us and to feed us. Therefore, as the number and direction of his writings make clear, the Lord's Supper was at the very center of Luther's concerns for true worship of God. And, and, then, um, and then we get this quote, which I did not put on my paper, but it's in the book. Um, from 1522 to 1530, from Worms to Augsburg, more essays flowed from the pen of Luther on the Lord's Supper than on any other single topic. Next to justification, the Lord's Supper is the theme Luther wrote about the most, for he understood orthodoxy as the right teaching and the right worship of the triune God. Frank Sin writes, Luther's Reformation attacked the very heart of the medieval church, the sacramental system, and his reforms aimed at liberating the evangelical sacraments that communicate Christ from their captivity to misuse. Okay, so Luther writes more about the Eucharist than any other single topic. Why? Because for Luther, this was the main problem. The Eucharist had become man's work to give God something. The Eucharist, which was a gift given to us by Christ as a promise to us, had been turned into law and seen as something that I must do in order to somehow earn favor or win his grace or get a good hunt or find a good wife or get a successful business, that this was a sacrifice now aimed at pleasing God that I was told to offer. No, Luther says, the sacrament is not man's work. It is God's work to us, which is the very gospel itself. It's what the Reformation was all about, that, that God in Christ Jesus gives to us grace and forgiveness and life and salvation. And that this Eucharist, is, it's God's doing. It's his work, not man's work. Um, and so Luther's, he, this is his first battleground, is, um, is what Pastor Whiting talks about. The first battlefront is his, his issues with Rome on this teaching that the Eucharist is not man's work, but God's work to us. And we see this quote from Luther on the bottom of page 100. Many consider the sacrifice of the mass the primary cause of the Reformation. Luther said, quote, It is the common belief that the mass is a sacrifice offered to God 
Even the words of the canon seem to imply this when they speak of these gifts, these presents, these holy sacrifices, and further on this offering. That's still true to this day. If you go to a Roman Catholic church, there in the liturgy before the sacrament, the people, the, the priest will say, sisters and brothers, pray that the sacrifice of my hands may be acceptable to God. And the people respond by saying, may the Lord accept this sacrifice for the good of his people and the good of his holy bride and for the good of his church or something like this. But there's this language of sacrifice. The priest prays that his sacrifice will be acceptable and the people say, we're praying that your sacrifice, it will be acceptable. Why are we talking about a sacrifice of God? Again? So Luther's writing this and says, when Luther published an order of worship, he removes the sections of the liturgy that emphasize the sacrifice. The Lutheran confessions describe this as an abominable error. Quote, the teaching that our Lord Jesus Christ has made satisfaction by his death only for original sin and instituted the, the, the Eucharist as a sacrifice for our other sins. The mass was made into a sacrifice for the living and the dead for the purpose of taking away sins and, and appeasing God. Meanwhile, faith in Jesus and true worship of God were forgotten. Now, Luther's changes were not wholesale. The last thing he desired was for people to think he had started a new thing, as he said. It's not now nor ever has been our intention to abolish the liturgical service of God completely, but rather to purify the one that is now in use from the wretched accretions which corrupt it and to point out the evangelical use of the sacrament. Okay, so what's the main change uh, for Luther when it comes to the sacrament? It's the teaching. It's the teaching revolving around the sacrament that is the main change from Luther. It's not the external things. It's the teaching of the things, the lex credendi. Rome taught that it was a sacrifice in order to please God. Luther teaches that it's God's work to give man his gifts. Um, this is why, you know, the argument of, well, if we have communion every week, that's just more Catholic, is itself a Catholic argument. Because what's that focusing on? The externals. It's not the externals that make us similar to Rome or make us different. It's the teaching. It's the teaching that the sacrament is God's gift to us. That's what makes us Lutheran. Um, it's not, a, not about we celebrate it weekly or not weekly or what, what the priest wears or what we're doing. All of these are external things. That's what Rome is focused on. Rome's focused on the external things. We're focused on the teaching of the faith. Um, that this is a gift. This is Luther's first battleground, and he, if he didn't have enough, um, he endures a second battlefront at the Marburg Colloquy, and this is in 1529. And here in 1529, what does Luther run into? A man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli, a reformer from uh, a Swiss reformer. And, you know, Zwingli and Luther and all the great reformers of the day, they have a great... Um, great motive. They want to get together and make one unified Protestant church. It's a good endeavor. Let's all get together, have one. We'll have, you have the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox Church. You have the, now the Roman Catholic Church, which is coming into existence. Um, it won't be until the Council of Trent when you really see it come together. Um, we need some sort of a 
evangelical church, a, a one Protestant church, and they meet together, and there's 16 articles of faith. Um, and it's, it's Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Luther who, who kind of um, end up running the show, these two, trying to get them together, and they agree on every article of the faith except one, the Eucharist. One little word, is. Ulrich Zwingli said is means represents symbolizes that Jesus is just spiritually present there and that he's not truly there. He's there truly in a spiritual sense. And Luther's, you know, the great, the great, uh, the thing that everyone remembers from this debate is Luther took, takes a knife and he carves into the table. Now, we don't know if this is all, you know, some like drama or whatever, but, but Luther carves into the table uh, the words of Jesus. This is my body. And Luther cannot get away from um, Jesus's words. He says, I must believe these words. They are the gospel itself. He's tempted to do away with the words. Why? Because he knows it will overthrow the papacy once and for all, he writes. He says, oh, how tempted I was to overthrow these words of Jesus because I knew how mighty of a blow it would, get, it would be to the Pope, right? Because what's the whole, um, the whole papal church built on? The idea of this Eucharist being a sacrifice to God. And if Luther could overturn these words. He, he saw it as kind of a final death blow to Rome, but he said, I can't get away from the words of my Lord. And, and, then, and as we see the teaching play out, you see Zwingli and his followers, they start emphasizing, do this in remembrance of me. That's the main thing in the supper. It's something that you are to do in remembrance of Christ. And what does that sound like to a Lutheran? This is more just law again. It's more focused on me and what I'm doing. This sounds Roman Catholic all over again, right? Luther, against both fronts, maintains this teaching that the sacrament is God's way of dealing with us and giving us his son and comforting us and forgiving us. And so Luther and Zwingli part ways, and from that uh, parting, uh, the Protestant church um, just keeps splintering, right? Now we have over 30,000 different denominations because of it. Okay, last thing I wanted to, two, two last things, and I want to get to questions. According to Luther, this is on page 107, um, in terms of the practice, how, off, how frequent the supper was to be offered, uh, according to Luther, when should Holy Communion not be administered or not be offered? Did you see this? When should it not be in the church service? When there's no laity there. When there's no laity there, when no one wants it, yeah. basically is his argument. If no one wants the supper, then don't offer it. And why is he teaching that? Because this idea of private masses has crept into the church. That just by the priest doing it privately at their home, that that was somehow efficacious for the people. No, Luther says people need to be there to receive it, and if they are there to receive it, then they should receive it. If no one is there and no one wants it, then don't, then don't have it. But, but he's, he's pushing for offering it every week um, for the people who desire it. Um, and then last thing, summary of Luther's battles on page 110. And we're going to stop here today because I wanted to leave time for questions. Uh, this middle paragraph here, the weekly opportunity to commune was central to the reforms Luther makes as he sought to return to the worship practices of the scriptures in the early church. 
coupled with this proclamation of justification by grace for Christ's sake through faith, was his weekly provision of the means by which the risen Christ brought the fruits of his own cross to his people. The recovery of communion received by the laity every Sunday was at the heart of Luther's efforts during the Reformation. Um, that was a big thing that Luther fought for, receiving it every week. The other big thing that Luther fought for was what Jan Hus fought for. People should receive both kinds, the cup and the host. And it wasn't until like 50 years ago, Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church started offering that to its people. It took them like 400 years to come around, but, but now they are offering both to the laity. So that's good on, on their part. Um, still need to change their teaching about what the purpose of the Eucharist is for, but um, and Luther, Luther struggled with that because what happens when someone who grows up in the faith and is taught that you don't really receive this, you just, you know, once a year is more than enough because these private masses are going on. And if, when you do receive it, you only get the host. You do that for 70 years, it's not like just change it all tomorrow. Um, but so there were some people who waited until their deathbed to receive the, the chalice. Um, but over time, you start to see the Lutheran church giving both and more and more people receiving both and receiving it weekly. Okay, so that's Robertus, Aquinas, Wycliffe, Huss, and Luther in 30 minutes. A lot more could be said, of course, but we're kind of blitzing through the history. Um, now, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you all. Um, 12 weeks ago, 13 weeks, no, it was like now three or four months ago, when you first heard about the church moving towards offering the supper every week, uh, what, were your, what were your thoughts? Um, any questions that you, that you had? And then now, now that we've spent 11 classes talking about it, are those questions still lingering? Your thoughts still wondering? Rachel. No, not at all. You are free to participate in communion as often as you so desire. Um, do not feel in any way uh, burdened or like this is something that you must do. Because again, the supper is not a law thing. It's not something that we beat people over the head with. It is it's a gospel thing. There's freedom there, right? So, so on the individual Christian, they... Come and receive it as often as you want, right? Um, now, on the church's side of things, should the church offer it every Sunday? Well, if there's people there who desire it, scripturally speaking, the church should offer it. The pastor should offer. If someone wants it, who am I to say, nope, right? But for those who 
who, who you know, you've, you've spent a few years not receiving it every Sunday, that's more than, that's fine, right? To, to continue with that practice or whatever's, whatever you're comfortable with. You will not be ostracized for, for sitting back. And I'm sure you won't be the only one who, who says, yep, not today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this week off. And that's fine. It's more than fine, Rachel. Do you feel like it will become more of a habit rather than a worship? Uh, yes, uh, that could, it, that's always the case with sinful man, right? That we can take things that we're used to doing all the time and, uh, and they become sort of less special or meaningful to us. Um, could be, right? Just like the Lord's Prayer can often become a rote thing or, you know, pastor's preaching a sermon again. You know, I wish he'd give it up for a couple of months. That, you know. Maybe a good habit. I mean, we have a habit of coming to church every Sunday. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, you know, that it, on our end, we can do these things with the gifts of God. But on God's end, it's still the same Jesus and the same forgiveness that is there. And that's not dependent on us you know, making it a, a, making it less special. I mean, that's, that's what, that's what sinners do. Um, yeah. We're sinful by nature. Right. Just as God gives to us to remove those sins, it's not like I, I can go two weeks. I mean, one week and you're, you sin, I mean, you sin every day. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, I mean, for me, at the end of that week, yeah, I want to have that forgiveness. I don't want to wait two weeks or, right. you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, this, um, I think it was like three years ago, two years ago, I received a letter from one of our college students, you know, who would attend infrequently because they were in college. And they said, why, you know, when I come here on a Sunday, communion's not here. Yeah. Give us time. <laughs> You know, that was two or three years ago. For those who desire it, it should it should off it should be there for them. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? When Chuck. Class first started. Yeah. My thought was, why are we even having this discussion? Why are we moving to this? We're doing it two, sometimes three times a month. I feel like that those questions have been answered for me. Good. The class. But then it makes me go back to more of a history question. Yeah. This particular church, and you may not know that because you obviously weren't here. That I know. Some of you guys were back in the '80s when I first moved here. Mm-hmm. We only did it once a month. Yeah. Why did churches, if, if it, if way back, way back in, they had it at every worship service? What, what caused the churches to migrate to just once a month? I mean, then you may not know the answer to that, but that makes my mind work. Why did it? Why did it change in the first place? Yeah, th- that will be next class because uh, we'll pick up from five fifteen hundreds to present day. LCMS Lutherans, and specifically what happened when the Lutherans came over to America and the communion practice there. And so we'll answer that next class. Okay. Yep. Other thoughts, questions? Have you thought about the ladies rebelling against trying to have to do it every Oh, <laughs> yes. Keeps me up at night. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Edith and I have uh, Edith and I have um, talked quite a bit over the last six, seven months, 
And uh, yeah, the ladies are. This is. Yes. Yeah, it's 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 putting a little bit more of a load on the ladies who are preparing for communion, and and uh, thankfully, Edith and the ladies are finding a way to make it work, um, and we do need some more some more hands to. No, no problem there. Yeah, no. This kind of goes back to Rachel's question on the on the kind of the external things. You know, does the scripture prescribe that a believer must take communion every week? No. There is no scripture passage that says that you must take communion every seven days or every Lord's Day or set the vessels in certain directions, right? But but the question is, should the church offer it every week? Right, so there's no sin on the believer's part. It's whether or not the church should be offering it. And, and, and the, scripture, the scriptural witness is that she does. The church does offer it every Lord's Day. And the church offered it every Lord's Day up until about six or 700 A.D. So um, this is why the Synod passed its resolution to encourage us to, to offer the opportunity for communion every Lord's Day, as the historic church did. Yeah, Russ. Well, I just... I've told you this about whenever uh, growing up, our church always had reserved seating up front for everyone that wanted to communion. And it was interesting that there was some people that sat there every week and communed every week. Some people sat up there twice a week, once a month, or twice a month. Some first Sunday of the month was always the, the biggest time when everyone would commune. And then there's some people that grew up and they would commune Easter and Christmas and some festivals. And that was it. And it was it was a very personal relationship with with God of what you believe and what you grew up with but it was there was the whole gambit of of people I you know even whenever I was an elder um, they would talk about we would um, assist with communion and there were some older people that would not take the the cup every time Mm -hmm. they would only take the, the bread and on festival times or east especially Easter they would take both Hmm. So there is, there's no right answer, I don't think. Right. It's just, it's what you are comfortable with, how you, what you feel. And it was interesting, you know, you could see the different families would sit and take communion weekly. Different families would take it once a month. My family was one of those that was, um, they, whenever I was younger, I remember my parents would only take it the first Sunday of the month. And then it became more and more regular. It just kind of changed. Mm-hmm. How did you prepare? How, how, how would the, you know, the church prepare for how many were coming? Right. It just kind of got to... You probably knew pretty much. Yeah, after a time, it was, you know, it kind of knew. But, but yeah, there was a lot of times that was um, a lot left over. And then several times they'd have to go back and prepare more and bring it out and bless it again. You know, so mm-hmm. there were different things like that. It's an, that's an interesting concept, having the reserve seating up front, and not to take away the fact that it's God's gift to us, but it's man making an intentional decision when they come to church, versus sitting in church and during the readings you have to look up, oh, you must be having communion today. <laughs> you know, coming into church, you intentionally knew I was going to. Mm-hmm. So, so that's just was an interesting thought. Yeah, you know, there's a variety of reasons why people would refrain from the supper. And yeah, I, 
first one that comes to my mind is this, the organist at Zion Lutheran Church in Bolivar. She was 86 and still playing the organ every Sunday, Lorraine. Um, faithful Lorraine, such a, such a uh, faithful woman. And I remember talking with Lorraine one Sunday and she was telling me how she went to Holy Trinity in Soulard, you know, one of the very first LCMS churches in this country that CFW Walther himself preached at 180 years ago. And at that church, they still have the original chalice that they brought over from Saxony. Uh, it's like a 250-year-old chalice. It still has gems in it that I guess some queen put in there from the 1600s. I don't know. Anyway, Lorraine was telling me that she went. It was such a beautiful church service. She said, but but I couldn't take communion. I said, why, Lorraine? You're Lutheran? <laughs> you know? She goes, oh, I was so focused on that chalice, I just decided that I probably shouldn't. <laughs> I said, oh, Lorraine. You know, but for her, it was, my, my, my heart's not in a good place, my motives aren't right. You know, I'm, I'm so, the chalice, it's so beautiful. I probably shouldn't take it, you know? <laughs> so I just think about Lorraine, you know, when you never know why someone's refraining, you know, but uh, you never know. But, but, you know, I thought about this, you know, taking Martin Luther's example. We could start every church service by me, like, getting up there and saying, does anyone want communion today? And if one hand goes up, we're having it. <laughs> yeah. All right, elders, go ahead. You know. That'd be a good way to know how much to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm pretty confident. That's the first part. That's the first part, yeah. Well, you know, we talked about the history. Previously on Saturday nights, you would, you would what was the word? You would yeah. announce you would announce so that the pastor knew on Sunday how many to prepare and that there were people who wanted to receive the supper. Um, but I'm confident enough here knowing that there are many people who are desiring that gift that I don't need to ask the first thing. You know, that would just become like a rote thing too. It's like, how many Sundays in a row do we need to do that before we're like, pastor, just stop asking. People want it. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking where you said um, we don't know why people decide something which implies we don't judge. Right, yes. And what their decision is fine, it's between them and God. That's right. It's not between them and me. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I, I wrote in the, in the bulletin a couple of weeks ago, what should we think if we see someone not going up for communion? We, our first thought is they, they're doing something um, for the betterment of their faith. I mean, their, their relationship with Christ is they're there are good reasons why one refrains and so that should always be our first thought is okay they're being faithful they're they're doing what they need to do worry about yourself right. i guess yeah one, chuck one little benefit to doing it every week regarding this which we shouldn't just worry about ourselves but if it's offered every sunday there's going to be a lot of people that probably won't take it every sunday so you're kind of just not even going to pay attention because <laughs> people are taking communion yeah you know. yeah that would be good Yeah. <laughs> you know, a question that has been posed to me that I, you know, I think is worth asking 
you know, is, is ha have we sinned by not doing it weekly in the past? You know, are, are we somehow saying that what we did in the past is wrong? Um, have we sinned in this way? Well, again, I would say, have, have this, do the scriptures prescribe anywhere that you must take it every week? Oh, so uh, there are no prescriptions for the believer that you that you have to receive it every Lord's Day. That's you're free, right? Um, all that we're told in the scriptures is that the church was celebrating it every Lord's Day. So no sin on your part. The, if the church isn't offering it, right? There's no sin there. Um, but now, should the church be offering it every Lord's Day? Well. Yeah, it's the biblical and historical practice of the church. Um, and we know it's the practice of the Lutheran church. It's in our confessions that, that this is to be offered every Lord's Day and on feast days. So, so you know, this is, it's, um, the question is, why did we stop? And then we'll talk about that next Sunday, you know, why we stopped, what happened there. Any other thoughts, questions? Yeah. Well, the church has been around for 2,000 years since Christ and much longer before him. So there's been a lot of historical development on these things. We so often just look where, where, where we are today and not maybe process where it yeah. comes from. Yeah, and, you know, Luther's whole point, if we look to the scriptures, the scriptures is what guides us. So what do the scriptures say? Um and it's helpful to look at the history, too, of how the church has wrestled with those scriptures and some of the beautiful things that have come out of that wrestling and then some of the blunders. I was like, oh, got that one wrong. Let's backtrack. But it's always the scriptures that, that shape us and, and guide us and form, form, our, form our practices. Um, so there's two main things, justification by grace through faith and the Eucharist. These are the two great tenets of the Reformation. Lynette? Oh, I was going to say that. Uh, Aquinas? Uh, yeah, Thomas Aquinas. Oh, his name Aquinas? Yeah. Okay. It's probably Roman Catholic Church then? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay, well, next week we're going to uh, look at that sixth chapter, modern day uh, LCMS belief and practice, and kind of going back the last 150, 200 years um, and looking at our communion practices. And then we're going to spend like the last 20 minutes just talking about practical things. So we talked about those four categories, systematics, exegetical, historical, and then practical. You know, so we're going to talk about like, how do we go about receiving this? You know, what do I do with my hands? These sorts of practical things. Just talk about it. What do I do with my hands? I don't know what to do. Let's end with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.